And we are indeed in a short series on Sundays looking at what we believe. We've had a morning looking at the Bible. We believe in the Bible and why we do that. Uh, Last week, looking at uh, Al preached, and I heard a great report on it about preaching about the Holy Spirit, that he had some technical difficulties. I understand. Uh, As we approach Christmas, this morning, we're looking at our belief in Christ and his cross. Have I got that there? There we go. It's a picture I've used a few times recently. And what we're going to look at this morning really is, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And why does it matter that we believe in his death? And we're going to look at that through some of Jesus' own words. In particular, we're going to look at some of the I am sayings in John's gospel, and I'll explain a few of those as we go through. In John's gospel, Jesus is recorded eight times as saying, I am. And in seven of those, he said, I am this or that or the other. He said what it was that he is. Uh, But there's one instance that stands out. It's in John chapter 8, and that's where we're going to start getting to grips with who Jesus is. This is the text in John chapter 8 and from verse 56. Your father Abraham, this is Jesus speaking to Jews who were indeed descended from Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they said to him, but you're not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. Very truly, Jesus answered, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from from the temple grounds. Now, they picked up stones to stone him, because that's what you did to blasphemers, to people who said what should not be said. And in particular, because here in what Jesus says, he makes a claim to be God, which may not be obvious without understanding a little bit of the background. This phrase, I am, as it is in English, the Greek equivalent of that is the phrase ego. So we get our sense of who we are from, the word in Greek for Me, for I, is ego. Ego, I, me. I am. And you think, well, fine. That's a good translation then into the English. But there was another translation from one language to another which matters here. Because that phrase, ego, I, me, was used in Greek to translate the name of God in the Hebrew Scriptures. So there's a word that we um, used to... We used to use the word Jehovah nowadays... Uh, we tend to use the slightly different uh, word Yahweh as a direct way of saying that's, that's the Hebrew word that's at play here. And it's a word that's a little bit tricky to translate. It's a name, but it's got a meaning. And the best sort of way of explaining what that word might mean in Hebrew is that when God announces his name, he says, I am who I am. It's what the word Jehovah or Yahweh means. I I am who I am. There's no need. This is the name of God. There's no need to look beyond him to find out who he is. There's no other reference point that would make sense of him because he is supreme and unique. 
And so the best thing that can be said of who he is, the best way of naming him, is that he says, well, look, I, I am who I am. And in that, there's an invitation to get to know him for who he is. And when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, and they wondered how to articulate that in the Greek language, when God's name was recorded and translated, they used this phrase, ego I me, I, I am. And so when Jesus' uh, nature is being questioned by the people around him, when he's saying, look, I've been long anticipated, and actually, even before I was born, there I, you know, I existed before my birth in a way that's different to all of you. And he says, ego I me, I am. They understood what he was saying. They understood that these words on his lips were a claim to be God, which was blasphemous, something that should not be said. And that's why they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus knew that these words would be heard by people as a claim of him being God, and he embraced that understanding that they had. So it's clear that Jesus claimed to be God, and it would do us good to slow down and to digest just what that means. See, we have a tendency to think of God in very human terms. The most common depiction of God would be an old man with a flowing beard sat on a comfy cloud somewhere. He's really quite like us. But God is much more than that. And I've got a video here which I hope will start to expand our perspective of who God is. And I'm hoping this will work. Yes. At this point, Steve showed a video showing the relative size of the Earth compared to various stars, the universe, and the multiverse. You can access this video at bit.ly forward slash star size video. That's bit.ly forward slash star size video. I thought that might just help us get a bit of a sense of perspective. Uh, Jesus says in this little phrase, I am, to claim to be the maker of all these things. We ought to slow down and, and to digest that. You know, following Jesus' ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection, the early church spent not just a morning, uh, but centuries digesting this and trying to make sense of it and asking, what can it mean that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is God? And they thought about it in a whole number of different ways and said, is it like this? Thought about it longer and said, no, it's not like that. Or, oh, is it like this? Oh, no, it's not like that. It took them until 451 AD to go through that range of possibilities. And in a place called uh, Chalcedon, which has now been absorbed in modern Istanbul, 
they came up with an understanding. Um, along the way, the things that they recognized, oh, no, no, that's not it, are what we know as heresies, wrong ways of thinking about who Jesus is. And I thought I'd run through a few of them with you with reference to superheroes. Uh, Spider-Man uh, is, a little, is, is human and a little bit spidery. He's got spider in him, he's got human in him, and those two things have blended together to make him who he is. That is wrong. That is not just like, well, Spider-Man's free to be like that. It's not how it works for Christ. The, this particular heresy, they all have ism-y sort of names. Eutychianism is the early heresy that these two bits of who God is, uh, who Jesus is, God and man, were blended together into some kind of unique mix. That's not how it works. Um, neither does it work like this. Oh, that's, uh, this heresy, docetism, is the idea that Jesus wasn't really human. See, super, Superman, he's not human. He looks it, especially in his Clark Kent, Clark Kent guise, but he's not really. He just seems to be human. He's actually something else. Uh, that's another... No, that's not how it is. And there's another one, Iron Man. Uh, Nestorianism said that the human part of Jesus and the divine part of Jesus are like two different bits that sit alongside each other but are never truly united. Um, a little bit like Iron Man, although in... I'm assuming you know about Iron Man. Uh, he's human and weak, if anything. He, he's a weak human physically, but his suit, the thing he puts on, gives him strength. Actually, with this particular wrong way of looking at Jesus, it would be the other way around, that Jesus' humanity is like the suit that is taken over by a divine soul, which is where the strength really lies, inside uh, but that's wrong as well. You know, I, there's not another superhero that, that hits the nail on the head and gives us a right understanding of exactly how Jesus is, how he is God and man. Instead, I want to read to you some of the text that came out of that council at Chalcedon in 451 AD, because they thought about this. This was the result of centuries of, of digesting this truth that Jesus is both God and man. And they put it like this, and it's quite a few words. There we are, that's modern Istanbul, and that's where they met before it was built up. Our Lord Jesus Christ is at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, which, that, just interpret that for you, that means that in his humanity, in his being truly man, it's not just a human body, he has a human soul. He's like properly human. Of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin... As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, he is recognized in two natures, without confusion, 
without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the two natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person, our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's, that's, that's how it is. And the question then may be, so what? Because that might all sound a bit highfalutin and distant from today and life as it's lived. This nature of Christ, this person who is God and man, is, is, he's unique. This unique nature gives him a unique role. And, and that unique role is to be able to mediate between humanity and God, where there would otherwise be a chasm between us and God, the maker of all things, he can bridge that because uniquely he has a nature that is both human and divine. As a man, he can represent us. He can sympathize with us. He can set an example to us. As God, he can reveal God accurately and has the quality necessary to remain sinless and also the power to bear all human sin to deal with it all. This is Jesus. When we say, as Christians, we believe in Christ, this is what we're believing in. An astonishing person a unique person, the only person who is both man and, and God. To help us understand this more, we're going to look at a few more of these I am sayings. So the first one that actually comes up in John's gospel is this one. I am, says Jesus, the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall not thirst. Uh, I want to recount a story which I've recounted many times, and some of you will be very familiar with it, but it's a perfect uh, illustration of the significance of this to us. Uh, In the time of the genocide in Rwanda and Burundi, uh, there was a woman called Chrissy Chapman, who was sent from one of the churches in our network to be in Burundi. And when the genocide began and people were displaced and refugee camps were formed, she went into those refugee camps with great big dustbins full of porridge to feed people who needed it. And one day as she was doing that, the the bin was nearly empty, and she just had one bowl worth left. And she saw an elderly gentleman sat up against a wall, and she determined to go and give him that bowl. And she sat down next to him, and she heard his story. And this man in his 80s had been displaced. He'd lost his home, lost actually all of his possessions. And in addition, out of all of the members of his extended family, he was the only one who'd not been murdered. And so was 
entirely alone in the world in his 80s. So she gave him the bowl of porridge, and, and he was grateful. And she got up to leave and to clear up the things. And as she walked away from him, he called out to her, and he said, Missy Missionary! He said, I want you to know that I didn't know that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall not thirst. There is a promise here that is strong of satisfaction to be found in Christ. I was in Manchester last weekend. I was invited by a church there to speak about sexuality for the day, to break the ice for them on being able to talk about sexuality more openly together as a congregation. And so I was there last Sunday morning, and they sang this song, which has a lyric. We might have sung it this morning, so it's one that's familiar to us. The lyric says, Christ is enough for me. Everything I need is in you. Many of us have sung those lyrics. I found myself last Sunday, I hadn't meant to, but I found myself as I was speaking there saying, I think there's a problem, which is that I don't think many of you, this is speaking to them, but it probably, I'm sure it applies here as well. So we sing those words, we don't actually believe them. Uh, Last weekend, I was speaking about sexuality and about forming intimate relationships. And in that context, it, it seemed appropriate to say, you see, pretty much everyone here believes that really they need uh, an intimate relationship with another person in order to be happy. You know, without that, you can't be properly satisfied. And uh, I said, there's a good argument to be made that those few people amongst us who've made a choice to remain single and celibate, in that declaring that Christ will indeed be enough for them, those people have a good claim to being our spiritual elite. It was quiet like this last week as well. (laughs) Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And there's, there's depth and there is strength in those words because of who he is. He can satisfy. A mere, mere person, a mere human being could not make that promise. But this person who is human and who is divine, he can make this promise and he can keep this promise. About 25 years ago, soon after I moved to Oxford, there was a move of the Holy Spirit that uh, was going on in many places, but which we joined in with. I remember my 19th birthday in St. Old Eight's Church in a meeting led by people from the vineyard and with people from different churches across the city who'd heard 
that God was active in the world in a new way, doing new things. And those that were leading the meeting who were from the Vineyard Church prayed for us, and something happened. And there was a widespread, like throughout the place, and not only then, but in meeting after meeting after meeting, and some of you are nodding, meeting after meeting, for a few years, the same thing kept going on. We call those times moves of the Holy Spirit. Again and again, we found ourselves with the whole room laying flat out on the floor, undone in the tangible presence of God, not knowing what else we could do. And again and again, as people got up again, they described, they described their experience being like liquid love had poured through them into parts of who they were that they didn't know existed. And, and they were changed. We were, we were changed by that. People who had experienced mental health problems and people who had experienced besetting sins, things they hadn't been able to step out of, addictions, found them falling away. You know, there are organic elements to addictions and to mental ill health. And there's also something that's like a a sickness of the soul, which is addressed by the power of God. It says in Romans 5 and verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And, you know, that experience, that season of a couple of decades ago is just one of many If you read church history, you will find that again and again and again, there were people who took these words of Jesus and others like them and said, I need that. I no longer want to live a life where I sing the songs of worship, but they don't resonate in my heart. I need that. Holy Spirit, it says it in Romans 5, and we can claim and stand on these promises of Scripture that there is, there is something that is possible for us, but we can't work it up. It doesn't happen because we have the right lighting. It happens because God is active. Jesus is present amongst us by his Holy Spirit. He does stuff with us. As people got engaged with those promises, they set up prayer times and they became serious in saying, God, God, look, you said this stuff. Will you please do it? You've promised to satisfy me, and I remain insecure. God, would you turn up, pour your love into my heart, and change me? We have an encounter meeting tonight. That would be a good opportunity to do this kind of thing and to do it together, and to help one another, and to pursue God together. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Jesus also says, it's the next I am saying that comes in John's gospel, 
I am the light of the world. We've already looked at this this morning and lit candles without burning children, which is a wonderful advance. He who follows me shall... I did burn your son, didn't I? You said I didn't burn anyone. You were very kind, Al. It was your son I burnt. Um, I am... And he didn't forget. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You know... Because Jesus Christ is God, then his words can guide us perfectly. But it's not just guidance he gives us. It says here, the light of life. Jesus gives us life. Natural light, described as photons or electromagnetic waves, gives life to plants. They make use of it. And through that, life to all living things. When the sunlight increases in the spring, we speak of the world coming to life. In the Old Testament, there's another kind of light that's described, which is to do with the presence of God. When God is there, people could describe something that the the Hebrew word is shekinah. There's a thing that is translated as as glory, but it found a visible expression at times in their history as a pillar of fire. That is like a, a pillar of light. And that pillar of fire, of light, guided the people as they were wandering around the desert and didn't know where to go. It would move ahead and they could follow it. Not only that, that same pillar also protected them. When the Egyptian army came after these Hebrew slaves who were physically defenseless and were about to destroy them, this pillar of light got in the way and stopped the army and saved the slaves, saved the Hebrews from death, keeping them alive. Light not only guides, it saves us The darkness is dangerous, but Christ, being God, has power to overcome all darkness. It's also written in John's Gospel, right at the start, in the beginning was the Word, that's a way of describing Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that's been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. Jesus, being who he is, is able to lead us. He's able to protect us. That's why it makes sense to have a week of prayer, to come to him to ask for his guidance, to come to him to ask for his protection and his salvation. And we can pray for small things, like I I prayed that God would help me ahead of speaking this morning. It's good to pray for small things. And we can pray for big things like Brexit. I do want you to know God's got Brexit. Uh, Because he's got the nations in his hands. For God... Leading us forward is as easy as helping me preach or whatever small thing you might also pray about. God cares for the small and what seems to us the big, 
and he is God and well able to deal with it. So we can pray about all things. We're going to finish this morning with two more linked sayings where Jesus says, I am. This is in John chapter 10. And here Jesus speaks about being a shepherd. I need to just explain something. A shepherd with a sheep pen. And the way that the sheep pen worked then was, was a wall that went most of the way around into a complete circle, but with a little gap. So that all of the sheep could go in at night through the gap and be safe for the night from the wolves and the lions. And then the shepherd could lie across the little gap and himself form the gate. And in doing that, prevent any harm from coming to the flock and also prevent any of them wandering out at night into the darkness. So Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am, says Jesus, the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep. So when he, the hired hand, sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. I lay down my life for the sheep. In this world, then, there are thieves and wolves and hired hands, all of whom, it turns out, care for themselves. But there is also a good shepherd who cares for others more than he cares for himself. And not just for others, but in this picture of a shepherd and sheep, Jesus is openly saying, you know, I am greater than you. You know, the sheep are of less worth than the shepherd, and all the more amazing then that the shepherd would give his life for these, the, the, the sheep, that Jesus, who is God-man, would give his life for, for mere people, for, for us. It's an amazing, amazing demonstration of love. That's why today's talk title wasn't just We Believe in Christ, but we believe in Christ and his cross because it's through his death that we get this clearest revelation of his love for us, that he's not simply seated on a throne high and exalted and pouring out blessings upon us, but he will become lowly and vulnerable even to death and lay down his life for us. Jesus, fully man, and fully God, by nature without sin, by nature immortal, so loves people that he would die for our good. And so he did.
He paid a price of death for our sin, for our guilt. He died in our place to deal with God's wrath against sin. This unique Jesus, the unique man who is God, uniquely able to mediate between God and us and to bring all of God's goodness to us. We can be forgiven by one who is greater than the universe and come into relationship with him. Now, I've covered a lot of ground. (laughs) I've said a lot of things, and none of them I don't think were small. There's much to digest. I think it would help us to sing a song in a minute. Um, If what I've said about being able to be forgiven and what I've said about being able to have a relationship, an actual friendship with this one who is greater than the universe, if that struck a particular chord with you this morning, can I encourage you, talk to someone about that. Say, well, that was a thing, wasn't it? Start a conversation. And there are plenty of people here who've been thinking about these things and living these things for some time who would be delighted to, to, to talk with you about that. Um, 